Welcome to The Edge from Bantam Tools, our podcast about designers, educators, and businesses exploring the frontiers of digital fabrication. I'm Bree Pettis. And I'm Zach Dunham. In today's episode, we sit down with engineer, inventor, and founder of Other Lab, Saul Griffith, to learn more about the research and ethos driving the agenda at this independent San Francisco-based R&D lab. Other Lab is home to Kestrel Materials, which we learned about in episode one of this season, as well as a few others that we'll also speak to over the next few episodes. Other Lab is special. It's no one place in the world that's doing what we're doing. No. And it's impossibly hard, and I don't know how to replicate it. And I don't even know how you explain it. Yeah, what is Other Lab? Because we're not an incubator. Nope. And because an incubator is overpriced rent for someone else's ideas. Uh, so we're more like a bioreactor. Or a fungus? It feels like Doc Brown's garage plus multiple Doc Browns. Yeah, you have to have multiple Doc Browns. They also, none of them can actually be Doc Brown. So it's, yeah. Because hmm. he's too crazy. <laughs> you know, I think this may have been more like Edison or Wright Brothers when private, you know, before World War II and Vannevar Bush. R&D in America was done in private research labs. Yeah. And I think this, that's maybe what this is most like. Uh, and the guy who des designed the modern federally funded research institutions, which invented the research university, which invented the national labs, et cetera, et cetera, they all had regrets by the 1960s and 70s that they had done it because by then it was already taken over by the military industrial complex. And it was like the designers of that system that, anyway, so I think we're the old fashioned thing. The private research lab. Just going to pause for a quick history lesson here. Venevar Bush was an American engineer who, during World War II, led the Office of Scientific Research and Development, where pretty much all of military R&D happened, including the Manhattan Project. Bush also paved the way for the National Science Foundation. Today, much of other labs' funding for early-stage R&D comes from federal grant money. We try to do important things, but then the challenge is how to fund that because everything we do starts way pre-venture capital. So we do a good job of getting federal R&D money. We've hopefully well spent 50 to $70 million worth of federal R&D money over the last 10 years. We've leveraged that, so that's, that does the pre-work, and then there's a few hundred million of venture money on top of that in dozen companies. Turns out we still have all of this R&D money. It's now been pork-barreled and earmarked over years and years and years, and it's going to these national lab facilities, which still do some good work, but that's not exactly where all the most innovative people want to be, and so it's not hugely effective. I think what we need to do is create a new national lab, which is actually just a distributed network of lots of little other labs that has access to all of that funding that could make America very, very innovative in a way it hasn't been since the 60s. What are some of the themes that are going on here? Quite honestly, there's two people here who really kind of drive the agenda, and both of those people roughly only care about things that involve energy. Accidentally, there's interest in things that fly, because, you know, we're all eight-year-old children inside, <laughs> and you very easily get to robotics and manufacturing from energy. 
Okay, so looking at the other lab website and scrolling through projects, you can see exoskeletons, urban transport, computational manufacturing tools, thermally adaptive materials, thermal comfort appliances, sky machines, solar tracking. The list goes on, but you're starting to see a trend, and there's a thread that holds all of these together. I think we've got 25 years to not completely render this planet uninteresting and fucked. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? Please. And so that means fixing all the carbon emissions. But like, even if we, we can still fix carbon emissions, yet still fuck the oceans and still screw all of the species that we're going to, you know, we have a million threatened species at the moment. That's pretty bad. So, you know, I'd like to solve those problems because I do grew up hardlining David Attenborough <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> but if you watch the latest David Attenborough, it's just like, wrist-slittingly depressing. It's really depressing. Yeah, watching baby walruses fall off cliffs, super hard. Yeah. Because climate change. Anyway, I'd really like to fix that. Not hugely interested in selling advertising or overnight delivery of any plastic item you want. So that drives the agenda. That means that we look at charts of global energy flows we pick the ones that are the biggest, hardest, gnarliest, most important. There's like six or seven things that you got to do to fix those problems. And we just try to figure out better math, physics, engineering to solve those problems. In 2007, Saul was granted the MacArthur Genius Grant. The foundation claimed Saul a, quote, prodigy of invention in service of the world community. I don't really blame anything apart from the fact that the people who would like to be pro-solving climate change have abjectly failed to tell us a story about how the future is better when we solve climate change. That's right. I still think we have a decade where you can say with a straight face, there's a chance that we solve climate change and everyone lives a better life. If we go another 10 or 20 years without doing any action, that's not going to be true. Really, I'm trying to influence the policymakers because you would like the next presidential or prime ministerial candidates of all of the democracies of the world to tell us a love story about how we solve climate change and how it's great for everyone. So we have to make it attractive. And it's totally possible and it's totally attractive and it will transform the economy in a very similar way that the economy was transformed after World War II, uh, you know, which was a very similar way that the economy was transformed in the 1880s, 1890s. So let's do it. It's going to be awesome. could be great. Before you said something about uh, we very quickly, with that theme, we very quickly get into manufacturing. And robotics. And robotics, yeah, manufacturing and robotics. What's that thread? Well, very explicitly, we have a solar company that's doing really well that we're really proud of, Sunfolding. They build solar trackers. That idea started, we wrote a proposal to the Department of Energy. You should be able to use plastic bags of air to steer solar cells to track the sky. Oh, I saw one of these. Yeah, the reviewer wrote back to us and said, that is such a good idea that if it was true, somebody else would have already done it which is like the worst possible review. Nobody has done this yet. So we take that proposal, which is littered with the words solar, actuator, and low cost, and we replace all the solars with robot. So now it's robot, actuator, low cost. We submit that to DARPA and we get funded (laughs) to build robots. While building those robots for DARPA, we totally made the world's first walking inflatable elephant robot that had no rigid elements, which was in fact like the great grandmother of Baymax from Big Hero 6. So we built that and um, at the same time accidentally made the solar actuator work with that funding. Then we go back to the DOA and say, hey, look, we made this thing work. (laughs) And they said, oh, now we'll fund you. 
<laughs> so our interest in energy quite literally translated into the technologies that became, you know, we now have two robotics companies, three robotics companies, two in robotics and one building exoskeletons using the ancestors of, uh, of that technology that we developed there in energy. But more broadly, you know, if we're going to fix agriculture, robots are going to be involved. There's no trans transportation and mobility future that doesn't involve yeah. <laughs> some kind of robotics. There's huge potential for precision CNC and robotics to <clears throat> give us big efficiency wins in manufacturing. Um, you know, steel, cement, aluminum, um, and plastic. Uh, just the production of them is a huge source of emissions of CO2. Not even the energy that goes into producing them, but the processes produce carbon dioxide equivalents. So automating and making new, different, more efficient kinds of manufacturing is part and parcel with solving some of the carbon and energy problems. Right. One fun fact, Bentham Tools, your host of this podcast, was formerly known as Other Machine Company, which got its start at Other Lab. There have been other digital fabrication companies that grew out of other lab as well. 3D Fablight, who we'll hear from later on in this season, being another one. So the way in which OMC and 3D Fablight fit in is just to make all the stuff of the future, you need the tools of the future, and so you're just going to build them in-house here? Or is there... It was built for the kids with, with OMC. Well, OMC, we were building for the kids. and I think 3D printing was, thanks in large part to Brie, was creating this amazing opportunity for revolution in desktoping the making of stuff, which yeah. I cared much more about the desktops of eight-year-olds than I did about the desktops of 26-year-old engineers. And I was like, you know, the 3D printer is cool, but plastic is limited and it's slow. We use a laser cutter and a water jet like they're hot glue guns and, you know, they're fast and they're structural materials. So you really, you know, it wasn't ore to the 3D printer, but you'd like these ands and you'd like them to be everywhere and cheap and you'd like innovation to be happening starting age seven. I think you also need CAD tools. We also did a yeah. lot of work at other lab writing CAD tools. So we wrote a lot of tools that ended up being acquired by Autodesk. Some, uh, you, your audience would know them. They were the tools known as 123D Make. They, now they're all in Fusion. So we still write a lot of our own computational tools to make stuff. One of the things I've been thinking about is around, if you can make it for space, you get a 10 times multiplier if you deploy it on Earth because it's just hard to do space stuff. Do you set up weird criteria for the stuff that you do to push you into weird spaces or into new spaces? You know, we don't do anything like that. I think most things here are 7% of global emissions is because of leaked refrigerant gases. Right. How do we change the refrigerant gas? Which means how do you invent a new compressor and thermodynamic cycle or do away with those completely and do air conditioning in solid state? Or what are the physical limits energetically in per kilogram flight at various air speeds? And therefore, at what thresholds does electric battery aircraft make sense and for what use cases? So maybe this You're is on the, the same spaceship, thing. Yeah. Maybe we're on the spaceship. Yeah, I would say it's it's outer space level. There was a TED talk that you gave explaining this project that you were working on with um, uh, kites, high altitude kites to harvest energy, um, where the where the that was high, great. High are. So not science fiction. It's just like there's more wind up there, and then you know, wind turbines have three wings. You don't really need three. You only need one wing, and then if you 
start thinking like that, then you can get rid of the gearbox that you don't need either, and then you can get rid of the tower. And the real goal of that project, everyone's like thought it was to make the wind turbine go up higher. Yeah. But it was actually to take all of the weight out of it. So instead of needing 300 tons of material for a three megawatt turbine, you yeah. need one ton. <laughs> um, and so then, like at some, you know, you at, in 3D printing, it knows this very to be very true. At yeah. some level, the cost of thing, the weight of a thing, is the proxy for its cost. And so we kind of everything we look at around here is like, how do you just make it weigh less and yeah. still do the thing? And if you can do that then you win some game. We have a very small bag of tricks. One is the observation that we now live in an age where compute and actuation is so cheap that you can use it as a substitute for metal or mass. So the proposition McCartney is if you can make it fly in circles without hitting the ground, you don't need the tower and you don't need the gearboxes. Right. So you're literally using control and actuation as a substitute for all of that material. Turns out that's true if you're by making inflatable robots. The reason robots are heavy and stiff and slow is because they need to have rotary encoders and infinitely stiff uh, sections between the joints and you know, just like they're basically glorified CNC machines and you're doing everything to try to get precision at the end effect or you just, mm -hmm. it's a horrible mass and error stack up working backwards. But if you have touch like we do in our fingertips and eyeballs like we have in our eye sockets, we can do way faster and better than robots without all of that. We don't need an encoder at our elbow or at our shoulder. And so our whole effort in soft robots is like, let's basically solve that precision and strength problem with compute, which is going to be a lot cheaper eventually yeah. than you know, cast iron and expensive rotary encoders. When we return, we'll hear more from Saul about what it means to be early as an inventor. And he also shares a charge to you, listener, on the ways in which you can contribute to these global challenges. But first, we catch up with engineer Ashley Schwartz of Rome Robotics, another other lab company. When I started doing the background on you, I immediately flashed back to Sigourney Weaver and aliens <laughs> in this exoskeleton battling an alien on, you know, the <laughs> spaceship wearing like a basically like a forklift that wrapped around her body. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Rome Robotics and, and what you've got going on. Yeah, we're a little different than a forklift. <laughs> uh, actually, that's our, our main objective, is that we, we utilize soft robotics so that we're not this big, bulky, hulking thing that you have to wear around. Um, automation robots out in Detroit that are picking up big pieces of cars and helping build automobiles and what these things all have in common is that they're made out of metal and they're driven by traditional drivetrains, motors, gears, and those are bulky and heavy and they have high tolerance machining components and all those fun widgets. Uh, but when we go back to wanting to put something on a human being and you know the metabolics and the comfort and the range of motion, um, those drivetrains and gears don't work as well. You imagine putting something so rigid over a joint and now you really lose range of motion and now you have this really kind of hulky, bulky thing that's on your body. So soft robotics, um, and in the way that Rome uses them, is we have a compliant actuator that's made out of a soft plastic sheet and reinforced by fabrics so that when it's not being actuated, it can actually fold down flat. And um, when we, we do actuate it, we use compressed air. Is it expanding and compressing based on just the natural movement, or are there like electronics to this that are have a, a sort of mind of its own? 
Yeah, it, it does have kind of a mind of its own. Uh, we like to use the phrase intent recognition. So you're still in control because the robot's looking for what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's trying to match that behavior and keep up and, and, and enhance your performance in that way. When people think about robotics, they immediately jump to hard materials. They think that, you know... The Johnny Five. Johnny Five, right. <laughs> um, Iron Man. Yeah. When you think about designing soft robotics, what does the process look like? Is there software that lets you do this? Is How do you do prototyping? How do how you think about this? Uh, people just don't know. So it, it kind of all has to start, like most things, with a proof of concept. So if you want to harness air to, to actuate a joint, we started with a little bench top single axis joint and we tried to figure out what materials can we use, how do we reinforce this so that we're transferring the load the way we want to. Because when you fill a balloon, right, it, it tries to become a sphere. It doesn't really, it just wants to push out in all directions. So when you want to direct that force towards helping someone straighten their knee, you need to try to think about how you're going to reinforce that balloon in the shape of that balloon so that it's driving the forces in only the direction that you want them to go and you're not losing energy in other places. So that's a lot of materials changes and figuring out how the sheet plastic that we use for our bladder um, don't want it to stretch too much. You want it to be somewhat rigid but also still soft enough that it does that soft actuation that has all the benefits of a soft actuator. Is there software that models that for you? or I think you could use software to model that. If you or you could just smush stuff. Or you could just smush stuff. And, and you could do the hand calculations and get close and, and kind of know where how you're attacking it yeah. um, without going through the full modeling process. And is that is that mostly what happens? You jump downstairs onto the textile knitting machine and CNC and you're, and you're just putting things together and smushing them and <laughs> vid- videotaping it very carefully and... So I missed the very early proof of concept development, but I've worked with a lot of the test stands that they used, so I understand kind of how they were doing them. Mm-hmm. And it started with kind of a back of the envelope calculation, like we're pretty sure that this is how this is going to behave, and then mm-hmm. designed a test stand that proves whether or not it behaves that way. And we hook it up with load cells and position sensor on the joint. And so we look at through the range of motion what the load cell is reading, and then we also can just watch and see does it buckle and squirm and move all over the place. Does it just explode? Like, and Which is always super fun, and we always scare just about everybody in the office when it explodes. <laughs> right, because you're compressing something. It's like, a, it's like taking a, like a bag and blowing it up and, yeah, exactly. and popping <laughs> if, it, if it goes wrong. Thank you again for being on the show and talking about your, your passion for air-actuated, soft, robotic Exoskeletons. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. Welcome back. This is The Edge from Phantom Tools. So you've been doing this long enough that you've had the time to be too early and then know that you were too early. What Are there things in, in your back pocket that were too early that you're going to come back to? Oh, I think I've been too early on everything. <laughs> this is an affliction you have then. It's an affliction, but I, you know, it, this probably means I'm doing my job well for whatever my job description is. Right? If you're meant to be like running the front. A, a cutting edge, bleeding edge, Building a better future. R&D, better future thing, you got to be early. If you're not early, you're not doing that job. I've been, yeah, I think we've been a little bit early and everything, and some things we've been able to shore up to keep them around long enough that they become just in time. I actually think we have a lot of things at the moment that are coming to just in time. We operate at six to ten million dollars a year. Yeah, probably half of that comes from federal R&D money. 
it is necessary because we want to play early in the technology cycle. Scary thing, I heard the statistic that Google now spends $9 billion a year on R&D, which is more than DARPA and the National Science Foundation combined. Now, if you had to say which is the worst spent R&D money in the country right now, like DARPA and NSF do a great job on that $9 billion compared to... I've been to tech transfer wow. days, and those folks are like... They know what they're talking about. They know about. what they're talking about. Dude. Maybe I'm going to turn your question around. The thing I want to be too early on right now, which I'm really bullish on, is biomaterials. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. everyone's really interested in biomaterials for, you know, uh, for pharmaceuticals, for drugs, um, and for medical devices. But I think that's absolutely the least interesting thing. Look at your fingernail. Think about the magical properties of your fingernail. It is so much stronger than any plastic you use for anything. It grows itself unbelievably resilient. And then magically, it can just biodegrade when you need it to. Right? <laughs> All packaging should basically be made out of fingernails or banana leaves or whatever. Right? I want my surfboard to be made out of cockroach wings. Um, you know, I want the structure for my car to be made out of whale bones. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, the synthetic biology, the tools that synthetic biology built us over the last two decades are kind of the foundations for the engineering required to now do this. Mm. And I thought that was a bit more of a pipe dream until I went and visited a mushroom factory, like literally a, in Sebastopol, just an hour and a half north of San Francisco. I can't remember the name. It's like... Oh. Giant metal sheds. It doesn't yeah. look like oh, much. Okay. Proper, they make industrial quantities of mushrooms for food. And because, like, you hear all the people. It's like fungi perfecta and all those. Yeah. So there's Ecovative and there's Microworks, who are these people who are trying to respectively use mushrooms to make packaging, and one of them is making a leather substitute and other stuff. But what you really want to believe is that uh, there's a biomaterial can get to competitive costs with plastics, which are so profoundly cheap, which is why they're in everything, right? And plastics are basically one to two dollars a pound for all of the good plastics. And turns out we all buy mushrooms at one to two dollars a pound. They are produced in quantity. So there is a phenomenal material, mycelium, which is chitin. It's got a lot of the same stuff your fingernail it's has. It's so in it. cool. Yeah. And where we can provably manufacture it at one to two dollars a pound. The only limit to manufacturing more of it is an availability of clean, edible cellulose. But uh, it's still produced in produced quantities. So, you know, I'd like to be too early building all of the biomaterials to replace all of the shitty plastic in our life. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to replace large portions of... Your IKEA furniture. Your, yeah. yeah. And I'd like to replace steel and aluminum in many, many cases with, you know, bioresins and biofibers aligned nicely and optimally using robots to make. So that's what I, you know, yes, I've always been too early. What I'm really early on right now is that, and maybe by just saying that now I don't have to actually be early doing it. And then lots of people will do it just in time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. You just, that, I feel like, yeah. like that was like absolution. The weight off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's what other lab actually should be. All right, let's, let's, let's be too early on something else. Um, we designed the National Lab Ecosystem, which consumes the majority of the $100 billion in federal funding in the US, which is the majority of the innovation funding in spite of what Google and Silicon Valley would pretend. 
right? Everything that is being commercialized in America right now as the hot new thing was invented on federal funding dollars 20 years ago. AI, yep. machine learning, autonomous cars, mm -hmm. high degree of freedom robots, yada, yada, yada. All So, you know, this federal, this pre-venture money is unbelievably important to any economy that's innovative. Agreed. But what we did by design through the 50s and 60s after Vannevar Bush wrote Science, the Endless Frontier, which you should all go and read, which is how we created the modern R&D infrastructure post-World War II. We'll add that to the podcast reading list. Absolutely. But then we decided on putting some national labs out there, but because it was the Cold War, we decided to put the national labs in the middle of nowhere in secure locations. How often do you get to rely on your thesis at MIT was, was growing machines? <laughs> I can't remember. That was, I, that was my PhD thesis. So... This is a funny story. I had a bet with my thesis advisor that if I got a p paper in Nature and Science by a certain date, that the title of my thesis could be Machines That Fuck Themselves, because I was trying to make self-replicating machines. Yeah. And he took the bet, and I got the Nature paper, and I missed the Science paper by a little bit, and it was such a bummer. So it ended up being Growing Machines <laughs> okay. instead of Machines That Fuck Themselves. <laughs> but... I was interested in how do you make a synthetic biology? Not like a synthetic biology, but a synthetic chemistry version of biology that you could have. It's an amazing thing. You throw a piece of information into a bucket of goop and out comes machine. How much, so I was interested in the information theory and the energy, the physics of the energy transformations required to make a biology. So one piece, one half of my thesis was like, how little information do you need to give atomic units of things so that they can replicate themselves? Mm. It turns out it's like three light switches worth of co compute. So, you know, you can build unbelievable complexity with tiny things. That was too early. Like, that's 50 years too early. <laughs> I don't know when we will make that in work in technology, but it was really kind of where information theory meets material science. Part of the reason why I'm bringing it up is because this self-replicating machine is this thing that so many people in the media lab space seem to be chasing. That was a very, very different self-replicating machine than totally. what I think I remember my interview with Neil Gershenfeld. I ended up actually having Joe Jacobson as my advisor, but I interviewed with Neil and he's like, the question, the interview question was, how would you build a machine that copies itself or something? Mm -hmm. um, I actually don't find that interesting. I don't know why. I'm, I'm really, I'm less interested in that. I wasn't really interested in the machines that make the machines. I'm interested in a very cheap suite of machines that allow kids to like ha have unlimited imaginations. Like unlock, how do I make, unlock yeah, my workshop here is maybe $2 million worth of stuff. I still feel like there should be a few hundred dollars simulacrum of that that can allow kids to in some range of materials. I'm still a fan of cardboard just because it's, it's every, it's pervasive, it's cheap, and it's biodegradable. And it's everything that you buy gets shipped in it. Everything you buy. And yeah. so let's, yeah, yeah. Um, for now, until we're shipping right. it in fingernails. Yeah. I'm interested in CNC machines for their capacity to make, let you make new things, not yeah. for their capacity to make themselves. I actually right. think that's uninteresting. Whereas the, the yeah. thesis was like, I want it, like, actually, honestly, I just, I look, we were trying to do microelectromechanical systems, MEMS, tiny little things. Yeah. And you look at what, he, everyone's like, look at this circuit board, look at what humans can make. And, or look at this transistor, and you look at this 
structured the the actual yeah. chip and like sure. sure that's kind of a few thousand it's, it's like a, a city block by city a few thousand city blocks by city blocks it's all rectilinear and then you look at a diatom and you're like which is a you know a pervasive single cell sea creature that makes its skeleton out of glass and has yeah. the most unbelievable 3d shapes and you're like we are rank amateurs in the in the in the game of making shit. Yeah. And so I kind of just lost my love for trying to brute force making machines with Cartesian axes, cut shit up until it makes stuff. Yeah. And it was like, I want to do what biology does. And I got really geeked out on how to Yeah, take inspiration from nature instead. Yeah. But we're talking about inventing tools. And yeah, I was asking I was asking Ashley um, from Rome about um, like what are the tools that you're using in a soft robotic space to model like actually how the joints are going to flex and and it sounded like a lot of that was sometimes just getting the materials out on the table and seeing how how things respond we are always in a race and i think this is probably true with everyone we are very good at simulation we are very good at computational geometry we're we're good at fe analysis we're good at optimizations of these things but still all of those regimes were designed for a universe of rigid materials that were to act as linear springs which harkens back to like Robert Hooke and Hooke's law and when he wrote f equals kx and linearized all materials it was like a godsend because then you didn't have to do any difficult compute to to make normal machines so we've been stuck in this Hookean linear rigid world forever and so all the tools that exist, all the FEA, only exist for rigid things. So then we are in a race because it all gets nonlinear and totally screwy when you're elastic and plastic and flexible and based on membranes and air and <laughs> liquids and stuff. And it literally gets squishy. Yeah. Even though we're good at it, nearly always you'll start simulating and trying to solve the problem, and the impatient engineers who can't write code will just make. 10 things until something works. And these two processes inform each other, but I think there is a little bit of frustration that nearly always physically building it wins. Because mm, yeah. you're kind of learning how do you have to simulate these novel systems as you go, and it's, maybe it's in retrospect obvious, but like you have to build it to kind of know how to simulate it. Exactly. Because you, of anyone, have a, have, probably have a good handle on this. What is your charge to the designers and the engineers in our community who have these machines in their homes and on their desks? What, they, what should they be doing? You have to electrify everything in your life. You need to focus on driving the cost of solar on everyone's rooftop down to such a low level that we won't even need a carbon tax because clean electricity will be the cheapest. We're on path to there already. You need to electrify every vehicle in the world. You need to create entire new categories of vehicles that are smaller than cars and don't suck in the same way cars do in terms of taking up all of the land in the universe. You need to completely redesign the way we build buildings. We put the same fucking buildings in Alaska and Florida, right? And none of our buildings respect the climates and environments they're in and they're all energy inefficient and horrible. Uh, we need to change all HVAC systems so that they don't run on natural gas. Natural gas is not a bridge fielder anywhere. We burned that bridge with natural gas. <laughs> so you've got to turn, let, figure out how to electrify the heating and cooling of everything. Once you've done those things, then I'd like some portion of your listeners to focus on, turns out one of the only things that humans use in a material flow that's 
as large as our material flow in carbon is cement. Currently cement, you know, we make gigatons of cement every year. I think it's four gigatons. So that means half a ton for every human on the world every year of cement, yeah. of concrete. So it turns out that's the only material flow large enough to put to sink carbon into. So someone out there just needs to figure out how to make cement that sucks carbon in, which it does during its lifetime anyway as part of the thing, but like doesn't emit all the carbon at the beginning of lifetime. So let's turn cement, the built environment into a carbon sink, not a carbon source. And then, you know, we all got to work on making everything out of fingernails. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Saul. Sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Edge, the Bantam Tools podcast. Check out all the show notes and the links at bantamtools.com slash The Edge. Make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.